today, we are continuing our study through Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 11, and uh, one of the things that we've been saying so far in this series is that Revelation is about events that are experienced by the first generation of Christians, and it's a book that is preparing the early Christians for suffering and even martyrdom that they would have to endure as followers of Jesus. And if you were here last week, the chapter we looked at last week, Revelation 10, had this vision of Jesus where Jesus was looked like this giant angel who had one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, and he had his hand in the air. He's swearing to the Lord that his, you know, all of God's promises would come true. And, uh, well, in the passage we're looking at today, Revelation 11, Jesus then gives a speech. And it basically, in this speech, he's summarizing most of the rest of Revelation. This is kind of a summary of what we're actually going to look at next summer when we return to Revelation. And uh, if you know the book of Revelation, you'll see some of the things that are going to come in the future. You know, the beast, if you know the mark of the beast. The beast is mentioned here in Revelation 11. And then, uh, and then the great city, which is Jerusalem, is going to be mentioned later as Babylon, who the fall of Babylon. And so uh, one comment that I want to make just before I read this passage, I usually don't do this, but there's one tr- small translation difference that I want to make than the way it's written in this passage. If you look at the end of verse 3, in this passage I'm about to read, there is a, uh, a quotation mark which ends Jesus' speech. And uh, in Greek, there aren't quotation marks. And I believe this speech doesn't actually end in verse 3, but it continues all the way through this passage through verse 13. So this whole passage is Jesus' speech where he's basically saying this is what's to come in the rest of Revelation. It's kind of a little preview, a little summary of the chapters that we're going to look at uh, next summer. And I'll tell you, there's all kinds of imagery in here, and I did my best to like move through it and try to cover as much as possible, but we're going to have to dig in and explain a lot of the details in this. And as I read it, you might say, wow, what is, what is this passage talking about? Well, I think it has really important truths for us as a church. So we're looking at Revelation 11, verses 1 to 14. You can follow along right there in your bulletin. This is God's Word. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations that they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have uh, power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of their people, some of the people, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and 
nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been tormented, uh, been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your, your word and, and passages like this one that we are studying now because we believe that you have given them to us. And you want us to use our minds to study these truths so that we could be encouraged, we could be strengthened, um, we could be challenged, we, we, uh, we could receive your promises, and we uh, could know how to live. And so, Lord, we long for you to speak to us. And so send your Holy Spirit now, the same Spirit who inspired these words to be written. May he come and, and um, teach them to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today... Uh, our topic is the unity of the church. Unity of the church, uh, which is both such an important topic. It's very challenging. Church is a challenging topic, especially as you think about we're a community of all kinds of people that God has brought together. Uh, you think of the people that are present here, all of your stories and backgrounds and families that you've come from, and and the things that you believe and the experiences you've had. We've all, we're all so different. And yet God has called all of us to be this one unified family. And, uh, and you know, some of us are, are more feelers and some of us are more intellectual and some of us, you know, really care about sharing our faith with others and some of us really care about worship or we care about prayer or we care about serving the poor. Some of us really care about theology and having accurate theology. These are all good things that God brings into his church, different passions, and yet all of those passions have the possibility of, tearing us apart. And then you add that we're all sinners. And our own sin has the possibility of tearing us apart. And we have an enemy who would want to tear us apart. And so um, what unifies us as the people of God as a church into a single body? Well, I think Revelation 11 gives a great answer to that. And you might wonder why I think this passage that I just read to you is about church unity. And the answer is that the main two characters in this passage are the two witnesses. Uh, you see them there in verse 3. It says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, uh, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Now, you might wonder, who are these two witnesses? And, uh, well, it says that these two witnesses are lampstands. And if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1 tells us that lampstands are churches. 
And so the two witnesses are the church. And then, well, if they're the church, why isn't it one church? Why is it two? You know, uh, what does the two mean? Well, we have to ask, how is the church the um, how is the church two in other places in the New Testament? And everywhere in the New Testament, when the two-ness of the church is mentioned, it's always talking about how the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, these are two groups that are becoming one in Jesus. So, for example, Ephesians 2 puts it this way. Jesus was creating in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Actually, it's really interesting. In this passage, it mentions these two witnesses, and then they're killed. And you see in verse 8 how it says, and their dead bodies. It's actually, in Greek, it's singular, and their dead body. is two witnesses in one body. It's a singular body. And so uh, that's exactly what the Bible says about the church, is the diverse peoples, Jews and Gentiles, and all kinds of people with all different backgrounds are formed into a singular body. And, uh, and so the two witnesses are a unified church that is on mission together with a common witness to Jesus. And as we look at their ministry, I think it has a lot to teach us as well about the unity of our church. And so this morning I'd like to point out four things from this passage that will unify us as a church. What unifies us as a body? Four things that I want to point out from this passage. This is what they are. The church is unified in worship. The church is unified in persecution. The church is unified in Christ, and the church is unified in mission. Four things. How do we become a singular, unified body? These four things, worship, persecution, Christ, and mission. And again, there's quite a lot of details in this passage, so I'm going to do my best to explain them as as simply and clearly as possible. So four points for us this morning. The first is that the church is unified in worship. So the the most important thing that unifies us is what we're doing right now, that we all come together and we stand before God and say, Lord, we worship you. We are a worshiping uh, body. And you can see that worship is at the forefront of this passage in verse 1 there. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. Now, what's happening here is that John, who, who wrote the book of Revelation, is told by Jesus to measure the temple and the people who are worshiping there. And anytime that word temple appears in Revelation, it's never referring to the earthly temple that's in Jerusalem. It's always retur- referring to the heavenly temple. And actually, the New Testament says in other places that the temple now is the community of God's people, that we are all the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where God dwells, is among his people and not in a building that's, that's in uh, Jerusalem or in the Middle East. But then uh, uh, John is told not to measure the court that's outside the temple. And the court that was outside the temple was where the Jews would gather to worship. So, you know, the Jews actually couldn't go into the temple. Only priests could go into the temple. And so the Jews would gather to worship there. And so he says, I want you to measure the temple but not measure the court. What is that talking about? Well, when you measure a temple, you me- in the Old Testament, you measured things that were holy. And he's saying that the people... The worshipers, who, the one body that come together of Jews and Gentiles who worship Jesus are the new holy community. And what's happening is there's a shift that's happening in this time in history 
where the place, the holy place is no longer that temple, the building that's in Jerusalem, but now the holy place is communities like this one. And if you want to go to a holy place, you don't have to fly across the world to go to the Middle East. You just have to find a worshiping community like this, and you will be in the presence of God. Worship forms us into the unified temple of God where God dwells. And I'll tell you, just what we're doing in this service does so much that unifies us. Just think of the liturgy that we go through. We begin with a call to worship where we say, it wasn't our idea to come here. God called all of us, every individual here. And that's how we should see each other. If there's someone in this church, you think, I don't really think like them and they're different than I am. But you have to think, but the Lord brought them here. It was not my idea. And the Lord brought me here. He stuck us together. It was God's sovereignty that brought us here. Or you think about we all confess our sins earlier in the service. I mean, what is more unifying? You know what tears apart a church is pride. I think I'm better. You know, you think of yourself too highly. And we confess our sins. We, we are all sinners. who need. We're a work in progress. We have blind spots. And so I can't look down on anyone who comes here. So they, pride can't rip us apart. And then we sing together with one voice. The Bible says that's powerful. That brings us together and say we worship one God with one voice. And then we sit under God's word. One word, one sermon that we all sit under. And then we say the Apostles' Creed. This is one creed. And we pray and we bring our offerings to the Lord. And then we come to this table, the one body that we're a part of. And what's happening by the power of the Holy Spirit when we gather here is we're all these diverse, different people that are being transformed into a unified body. We are being transformed through these worship services. And so uh, the first thing that, uh, that unites the church is worship. And, uh, and, and, but that, that leads to a second point, okay? So first, the church is unified in worship. Second thing we see in this passage is that the church is also unified in persecution. Church is unified in worship, and the church is also unified in persecution. What forms us, holds us together, holds on to each other and say, these are my people, this is my family. Persecution creates that deep bond. And persecution and martyrdom are a big part of this passage. And of course, the book of Revelation as a whole, and I need to explain a bunch of things during this second point. All right, so the church is unified in persecution and a few things to point out. Okay, first, you'll notice that last phrase in verse 2 where it says, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, one question is, what is the holy city? Now, most of us, when you read that, and actually a lot of commentators would say, well, the holy city is obviously Jerusalem. But if you look at Revelation, the, the name holy city is never talking about the earthly Jerusalem. It's always talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. And, uh, actually, uh, and in fact, Jerusalem is mentioned in this passage, and it's not mentioned as the holy city. It's mentioned as the great city. You see it there in verse 8, where it says, And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Where was Jesus crucified? That's Jerusalem. And, uh, and so Jerusalem is no longer seen as the holy city, but as a great and wicked city like Sodom or Egypt, or later in Revelation it will be uh, uh, called Babylon. There are these great wicked cities throughout the Bible, and Jerusalem has become kind of the last in that line of them. And this is saying that the church is now the holy city, and it will be trampled. The church is going to get trampled by the nations for 42 months. And so why is it 42 months? Well, 42 months is three and a half years, 
which is half of seven years. Seven years is kind of like the number of like the complete uh, trial or tribulation of suffering is going to be of, of seven years. And I think that this is, is actually talking about a literal time period of, of three and a half years. Um, and I'll, I'll explain this. Revelation was written to the first generation of Christians. And in the end of the first generation of, of Christians, um, they would experience two great trials, two great sufferings that would happen. And they happened in between the years of 64 AD and 70 AD, which is a seven-year period from 64 AD to 70 AD. And the first of the great sufferings was the first systematic persecution by the Romans against Christians under the the, uh, Emperor Nero. It began in the year 64 and continued all the way until 67 when Nero committed uh, suicide, three and a half years of suffering under Nero. And that's about 42 months. And then the second half is then these Jewish wars when the Jews revolted against Rome and the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem under the, the Emperor Vespasian and then under Titus again for about 42 months. It was about three and a half years. And, uh, and so one suffering, the first half is against the church, which this passage is describing. And then there's another suffering that's happening against Jerusalem. And these two events are basically what most of the rest of Revelation is about that we're going to look at next year. You know, we're going to be reading about the beast. The beast is the Roman Empire who, who uh, killed the martyrs under, under Nero. It's going to talk about those first three and a half years. And then the later chapters talk about the fall of Babylon. The fall of Babylon is the destruction of, of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. And so these two events are the historical context that these Christians are facing. And Revelation is about preparing God's people for this coming persecution that's coming to them. And so how do these two witnesses of the church become a singular body? It's through persecution. Persecution unifies the church. And actually, if you talk to missionaries around the world that are in places where they experience more severe persecution, they'll say it's exactly the case. You know, when you're in America... You, it's a lot easier to be like, well, I'm a Presbyterian and you're a Lutheran and you're a charismatic and, you know, I don't associate with them or whatever. And then when you go to some other place and then where you're being persecuted and you're like, you believe the Bible? You love Jesus? You want to you pray with me? You know, I love you. Oh, there is, you know, I've never felt so close to someone in my whole life. All of these, these differences kind of fade away and we say, these are my people. We have a shared Lord. We have a shared mission. And I want to cooperate with you and I want to work with you. That's what persecution does is it creates unity. When we suffer together for our faith, we become closer. And I believe that's the same for us. You know, we are living in our culture in a time of increasing soft persecution, you might call it. Actually, I, I just heard a story a couple of weeks ago about... Um, a young man in a, in a high school here in town, and uh, this was in the end of the year last year in June. Maybe you saw the news story that there was a uh, five Tampa Bay Rays baseball players who said they would not wear a, a, a um, pride patch for Pride Month during their baseball game. And so it was in the news that they were Christians, and they said for religious reasons, you know, I don't want to uh, wear a pr- pride patch. And, um, and so this, uh, this young man went to, went to school the next day, and his teacher brought it up and said, hey, you all saw this in the news? And this is an example of why all religion breeds hate in the world. 
Now, you imagine being a Christian in that setting. You're going to raise your hand and say, well, I actually believe that, you know, and it's like, you know, we're all trading thoughts back and forth. No. I mean, the social stigma, the social suffering that would come from saying, I'm a Christian and I actually believe that too, would absolutely be severe. And some of you feel that maybe in your work, maybe you feel that in your families. That's not a nothing. It may not be that we're being put to death or being imprisoned, but having to give care of the words that I speak and, and how I might be treated for being a Christian, that's increasingly a part of, of um, living in our culture. And that persecution is we're faithful and we trust and we say, we believe the word of God. We believe the Bible is not oppressive. The Bible is the source of love and grace to all people everywhere. God is good. Jesus is good. I believe that. That's going to bring us closer to be faithful and to walk through that. And you might wonder, why is it that persecution is the thing that's so powerful for the church? Well, that's the third point that I want to make about this passage, is that we see that the church is unified in worship when we gather like this. The church gets more unified through experiencing the suffering of persecution. But the third thing uh, we see is the church is unified in Christ. Our unity is in the person of Jesus. That's a big part of who we are as a church. Our name's Christ Church. The thing that holds us together is the person of Christ. And in this passage, Jesus is at the center of the ministry of these two witnesses. And what does it mean for us to be a Christ-centered church? Well, a couple things that I want to point out from this passage, okay? The first is that Jesus' word and spirit together unite us. Jesus' word and spirit unite us. And you see that there in verse 4, how it says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So what is the olive trees and the lampstands? Well, this comes from Zechariah chapter 4 in the Old Testament. And what it's talking about is basically the olive trees are producing olive oil that is piped into the lampstand and creates the fuel to, for the for the lamp. And so when you have these two things, the olive tree and the lampstand, the olive tree is the Holy Spirit who is the power that's in the church. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become a light. And the light is the word of God. You know, the, Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. The word is the truth that brings light into the world. And so this combination of word and spirit cooperating together are really defined what makes us distinct as a church. And, uh, and what, it, what, it's saying, what it's saying in verse 5 where it says, And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. The Holy Spirit, we know, is, comes down in fire. He comes with tongues of fire. So it makes sense. There's fire in their mouth. That's the Holy Spirit speaking with fire through, through the mouths of his people. And it says that no one's going to overcome them. And that's exactly what Jesus promised to his disciples. He said, listen, you're going to stand before kings and governors and, you know, your synagogues and people are going to be criticizing you and you're not going to know what to say, but the Holy Spirit will give you words in that moment. And you're going to confound people. They're not even going to have an answer for the words that the Holy Spirit is going to be put in your mouth. And you say, I don't even know where those words came from. It's just like God spoke through me. And uh, that's what's being promised in this, but with these words of fire. But it's not only that we're speaking words of truth by the Holy Spirit, but we're also speaking through prayer. Look at what it says in verse 6. 
They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And what's being described here is, the, you know, Elijah, this is an allusion to Elijah in the Old Testament. Elijah prayed for three years that there'd be no rain and there was no rain. And then he prayed and then it started to rain again. And in the book of James, he says that Elijah is a model of prayer for the church. And, uh, they, and, and so this is talking about the praying church. That's what Jesus also says. You might think, what is this talking about? It's like, you know, these cataclysmic events that are coming through prayer. But Jesus talks that way. He says, you know, if you pray believing that a mountain would be thrown into the sea, it will be done for you. Whatever obstacle is in your way, prayer will remove it. The world can be changed through prayer is what this is saying. It's giving this picture of the world being transformed through prayer. And so how are we united in Christ as a community? It's by speaking the truth with fire, the fire of the Spirit, and praying boldly for God to transform this world. That's how we're brought together, the Word of Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus, okay? But second, we also see that we're brought together, that Jesus' example also unites us. It's not just His Word and Spirit, but also His example and we've already mentioned that the church in this passage was trampled under the feet of the nations for 42 months. This is the, the great persecution that happened under, under Nero. And during that time, uh, these two witnesses are prophesying and bearing witness to Jesus for three and a half years. So their ministry is three and a half years long. How long was, was Jesus' ministry? Three and a half years or three years or some, roughly three and a half years. So they're doing the same thing that Jesus had a three and a half year ministry. His disciples have a three and a half year ministry. And then there's this massive persecution of Christians and the two witnesses are killed by the beast. And how long are they dead for? Verse 9. For three and a half days, some of the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. So three and a half days. They're dead. How long was Jesus dead? <laughs> three days. They're following, is saying that the disciples are following the exact pattern of their master, doing the same thing that he did. And that's what we're doing is we're looking to Jesus and say, Lord, make me like you. And Jesus says that about his suffering to us. He says, if, if anyone is not willing to follow me and take up their cross, they are not worthy to be called my disciples. And even if we're not going to face prison or death, we all as disciples still have to resolve in our hearts if we're Jesus' disciples, we would follow him to the cross. He, he has required that of his disciples. And so what unifies us at his church is when Jesus is at the center, he's speaking to us by his spirit and his word. He's answering our prayers and his example is in the cross. And we're unified as a church as we worship together, as we're persecuted together, and we follow Christ's example together. Now, some of this can sound negative, you know, dour, persecution, suffering, uh, dead bodies in the streets of Jerusalem. But this passage ends on a surprisingly positive note. And that's our last point, is that the church is also unified in mission. Our unity is in our mission. We are missionaries. If you are a Christian... You are a missionary wherever God has placed you. You have a purpose to, to serve him. And, you know, in our church, we've had a lot of people that have, the Lord has scattered over the last couple of years. I think we've had 
over 100 people from our church have, have moved away in the last couple years. And the Lord does that. You read about that in the scriptures uh, this morning. The Lucases, this was their last, uh, Timothy's last Sunday here. Uh, he's a longtime uh, member of our church. And I know that many people in the church have talked to me about like, you know, there's a lot of scattering happening. Maybe should I stay here? Why would I be in Bellingham? And I know for a lot of people, there's a change happening where I used to say I lived in Bellingham because the mountains and the ocean are here. And I, it's so beautiful. And I think increasingly, the Lord is forcing us to say, no, the reason I live anywhere is because I'm a missionary, because God has called me to a place to serve him in that place. Who is going to serve him in Bellingham? If you're here, it's you and me. And what this passage ends with, amazingly, with all this suffering and persecution, is it ends with a revival. And it says that all the nations were going to look at this persecuted church and be amazed at this church that is getting so abused. And, uh, and as the church is being killed, what happens? Look at verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. The church was persecuted but didn't die. It was resurrected. And the result was people coming to faith. Actually, you see it there in verse 13, how it says, and at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city. What is a tenth in the Bible? That's a tithe. A tithe is an offering to the Lord. The tenth belongs to the Lord. That's a tenth of people that belong to the Lord. And then it says 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. What's 7,000? If you look in the Old Testament in the time of Elijah, there were 7,000 priests who had not bowed down to the Baals. It's the faithful people. There's 7,000 people. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. It is describing that in that great tribulation of the first century, there was also a great revival and many came to faith in Christ. The church father, Tertullian, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Martyrdom and persecution, when received by faith, results in the growing of the church. You know, uh, G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. And I'll tell you why this is important. Because, you know, often Christians can develop a, a victim mentality about, you know, People are mistreating us. They're talking bad about us. And, you know, we should be treated better. And, uh, you know, there are many pastors around the world, though, that would say, let the persecution come. They know it's good for their churches. They know their churches will grow and their churches will mature and deepen their faith. And they say, bring the persecution. Welcome it. Because I know that that's how God's kingdom comes. You look at the cross. That's the pathway. And that's how Jesus' disciples thought. You know, when they were persecuted, they said, what a joy that we got to share with our Lord in suffering. And we too shouldn't be surprised. The Lord has his purposes in the world, and we are missionaries here. And the pathway to his kingdom coming is the cross of Christ. And you might think, this is a strange way to be a part of God's mission. Why would the Lord make it like this? Because it's not about us. It's not ultimately our mission. It's not our power, our wisdom, our creativity. It is about God's power working in our weakness. These two martyrs, these two witnesses are dead, lying in the streets. <laughs> and there's a revival. It wasn't their power. I mean, can you be more weak than being dead? 
What unifies us as a church is we know his mission is not about what we are doing, but about what the Lord is doing. And that is what calls us to worship him. That is what gives us courage to endure persecution and is what keeps Jesus at the center of our church. He's the one who's made us one, and so may our hearts be united in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we feel honored that you would speak the words of revelation to us. What uh, dignity you bestow on us, your children, that you would call us to, to follow Christ. Um, and so, uh, Lord, we pray that you would bond us together as missionaries that we would worship you with one heart, one voice, one conviction as we sit under your one word and come and eat at your one table. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would um, prepare us, resolve us, that we might be able to, to suffer, to wait for you, to trust you. And Lord, we long for your Holy Spirit to be speaking with fire to us and to those around us. Um, we long that you would teach us to pray, that we could see the world around us changing, lives around us cha changing as you hear our prayers. And Lord, we trust you, we feel weak, but you are strong. And so we give you praise and all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.